I think that there are a lot of people that like to have a cocktail and lament the problems in Illinois or in Chicago. But it's, it's dirty. They don't want to get involved in politics and policy. But if you want to move the needle, we have to play in that field. It, we can't, we've got to get our hands dirty. Welcome to Stay and Fight, a podcast about extraordinary Illinoisans who have made profound impacts in their communities and who, despite all of the issues in our state, are dedicated to staying here and fighting for its future. I'm Matt Paprocki, the president of the Illinois Policy Institute. And on today's episode, we bring you Ed Backrack, or as I like to call him, the most interesting man in the world. Ed was the CEO of his family's fourth generation Illinois company, Backrack Clothing, which was founded in 1877 and was the largest privately owned men's retailer in the United States with 82 stores at its peak. Ed isn't afraid of getting his hands dirty, fighting for the state's future, starting organizations, writing books, serving on the Illinois Policy Institute's board, and so much more. He is the antidote to apathy. Let's get started. Ed, so you you grew up in Decatur, uh, and your great-grandfather, Henry, started a business. Can you tell me about how he started that, uh, what he built, uh, and the history of that? Yeah. So, um, first of all, the ready-to-wear business, clothes that you bought that had a number on it that related to a measurement of your body, was a creation of the Civil War. They had to make uniforms in Massachusetts for people who were fighting in Virginia and Georgia. And so uh, they produced ready-to-wear clothing and they could just measure a person's waist, ship it down to Virginia, and he could put it on. The soldiers actually showed up in homespun. And then over a period, they started fighting in homespun. And then over a period of time, they got uniforms, the gray and the blue, and they become a more professional military. But Ulysses S. Grant, you know, when he showed up to, to fight in the war, he showed up in homespun. After the war, that innovation caught fire with civilians. So my great-grandfather was a Jewish immigrant uh, hustling on the streets of Baltimore. And he got a job with a clothing factory he got a quarter for every time he brought a returning Civil War soldier to the factory to get a ready-to-wear suit. And that's how they got into the ready-to-wear business. They all came to the Chicago area and branched out in the Midwest. This was the future. And so he had a number of stores. He had one in Paris, Illinois. He had one in Litchfield, Illinois. And then he thought the future was going to be in Decatur. So in 1877, he opened a store in Decatur his innovation. He got a lot of inexpensive but extremely valuable trinkets. And every Sunday when the store wasn't open, he would get his horse and his buckboard and he'd ride the countryside. And the most popular was just a simple drinking glass. But etched on the outside of it was the name and a picture of the store. And he would he would stop in front of the farmhouse walk up to the front door uh, when the, whoever was the man or the woman of the house would come to the door, he'd said, I want to give you a gift of a drinking glass, which was valuable at the time. 
and I'm Cheap Charlie. I've got a men's clothing store in Decatur, and the next time you're in town, I'd appreciate it if you come and trade with me. And I still have some of those glasses people have given me that they've found in their homes. But that's how he went out and hustled for business. Oh, that's cool. I mean, what do you do when you're a Jewish immigrant and you've moved to Decatur, Illinois, that has a population of 5,000 and there's no highways or just dirt roads? How do you make your business? And we ran it for four generations. What was it like for you as a kid? Did you join the business? I mean, did you work at Backrack stores as a kid? Did you work in the family business when you were young? I started working in the business when I was seven years old. Uh, you know, I took inventory uh, and then I handled will call. And will call is when people had purchased something and it was being altered and they came back to pick it up. And then they would give me their name and I'd go back and find it and bring it out and have them try it on, make sure it's okay. And then they would take it home. So I started doing that and taking inventory. And then when I was about 12 years old, I started working in the receiving room and worked my way up. By the time I was 15, I was on the sales floor. At 15 years old. At 15 years old. And then you, you know, as CEO, you grew this business significantly. I mean, you had 82 retail locations throughout the country. Yes. Uh, you had a mail catalog that just about everybody received. Uh, how, what was your vision for growing that? What was, what did you do? Do you have any stories about uh, taking, taking this family business, this intergenerational family business, right. and really expanding it to new levels? Well, uh, I'm going to tell you the truth, and people never believe me when I say this, but my talent is doing what I'm told. And my father's talent was that he was a business genius, and he really set up the business and, and all the principles and strategies involved, and all I had to do was just execute it. Uh, he is a wonderful guy. He's still alive. He'll be 106 this year. Oh, that's wonderful. But he, his shortcoming was execution. You know, he was one of these guys, he was very charming and influential, but he didn't follow through. And I'm just a plugger. I'm just persistent. I follow through and that's all I did. So the combination of having his vision and you, your execution was really a perfect compliment yeah, to each other. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so that was it. When you think of, uh, when you think of your, your father, any stories come to mind that exemplify what kind of what kind of person he is? Uh, yes. So he was uh, just a struggling businessman uh, in Decatur, Illinois, in the early 1950s, with three little kids, and he read a book written by Ernest Hemingway called *The Green Hills of Africa*. And he was captured by the idea of going to Africa. So in 1954, when I was five years old, he and my mother took off for a one-month safari in Africa, big hunting, big game hunting safari in Africa. And he, with your mother? With my mother, left the kids at <laughs> left the kids at home. And he did it again in '56. He did it in 1960 in Vietnam. He did it in Colombia and then and many other places. But he, he brought those trophies back and put them up in the store. And so our store was really like the original Banana Republic, only it was authentic. 
I mean, you would come into the store and the guy that shot those animals was standing there on the floor helping you. And we, we drew people from hundreds of miles away just to see the animals. And of course, they would buy a suit or a tie or a shirt or something like that. That was my dad, that was his genius. And the key there is if you get an idea, go for it. Don't get it and then just bury it. Well, I could never do that. Just say, why can't you do that? But keep in mind that ideas are a commodity and execution is not. You, you got to figure out how am I going to get from point A to point B and you can't be deterred along the way. So Ed, as you as you grew this business, you were employing you were employing a lot of employees throughout the country. I, I've calculated that over the thirty years that I ran the business, I had ten thousand employees. What was that like? And just about every week now, I run into somebody that used to work in our company. So, what was that like? What was it like having that many employees? Yeah. Uh, well, it was a, an exciting experience, and. I made it my business to know as many of the employees as I could. I, I certainly couldn't know all 10,000 of them, but they were the lifeblood of the business. If I cultivated them, they would cultivate the business. That's what I had to cultivate. So one of the things from my perspective that makes you the most interesting man in the world is you went into this, run this, this huge intergenerational family company. Uh, which, quite frankly, it's not, in my opinion, it's not just selling suits. You're, you're providing people opportunities, not just on the work side, but quite frankly, a suit changes how you feel, right? There's, there's something about putting on a suit that fits well, that looks good, that it shifts mindsets. Our, 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 our vision statement was men confident in themselves and comfortable in their world. So that's what we were trying to achieve. So Ed runs this big business, and it's very successful. Then in 2005, he sells Backrack Clothing. And a big reason is so that he can go back to school, like Rodney Dangerfield. He caught the bug for public policy in college, and it never left him. So he went to Harvard's Kennedy School of Government to get his master's in public administration. And ever since then, he's been knee-deep in public policy and civics in our state, to the degree that few businessmen are starting a pension reform organization, writing editorials, co-authoring the book, The New Chicago Way, serving on the Illinois Policy Institute's board and helping dozens of nonprofits. I asked Ed, what's the biggest problem in Illinois? The biggest problem is a cultural problem that happens in some societies where there is a lack of civic engagement. It happened in the communist and Warsaw Pact countries during the Cold War. And that is when the culture and the political environment discourages people so much, they give up. They, and their actions become apathetic. There is a term called anomy which means people lose interest in the meaning of life. Illinois' system makes it notoriously challenging for citizens to enact change, leading to frustrated feelings and lack of action. Gerrymandered maps take away voters' voices. 
courts historically have prevented citizen-initiated amendments from getting onto the ballot. And there's lots of red tape when running for office. I see that so many people in Illinois and even in Chicago are apathetic. And so they're not in the virtuous cycle of learning more, becoming more engaged, and putting forth effort to improve things. They tune out. Uh, they're more interested in things that are going to entertain them. They become less educated, and as a result, decisions that come or things that affect them discourage them more, and they throw up their hands. They feel it's use it's futile to get involved, and then they look for other ways to achieve whatever their objectives are. That's the biggest problem that I see, because when things when outrageous things are done, where's the outrage? Uh, and that, that is the core problem that I see in Illinois, Cook County, and Chicago. And also in Decatur. I mean, I see it there too. What's, what's the antidote to, to apathy? Uh, yeah, it starts with a core of people who are truly community organizers and activists. That is a very valid and noble undertaking. And you can't just rely on mass media, digital media, run an ad, send out a billion postcards and think that you're doing anything. You gotta get the electrons agitated and that's what creates electricity. And Ed isn't just preaching about civil society. He's living and breathing it. As just one example, he's working in his hometown of Decatur to address domestic violence, supporting an organization called Dove that operates a shelter, has a full-time advocate for the victims in the court. And Ed is sponsoring an additional advocate in the state attorney's office so they can develop cases against abusers. So the reason I got involved in domestic violence is that um, when I was six years old, both of my parents were working in our single store in Decatur. And uh, they had a babysitter that was taking care of us who was estranged from her husband. So one Saturday afternoon, my older sister and I were lying in our parents' bed watching the Mickey Mouse Club on a TV. We had only had a TV for one year, and so we were watching TV, but our babysitter's husband came to the house with a gun and told her he was going to shoot her. So he chased her through the house, took a shot at a workman who was laying some carpet there, almost killed him, and chased her out the back door and shot her to death on our neighbor's front stoop. And so I think that that is crystallize not only my commitment, but my sister's commitment to domestic violence in Decatur since. Uh, obviously, we didn't act on it. I was only six years old at the time, but when I became a responsible adult, I've taken an interest in this. It's one hell of a thing to see at six years yeah. old. I didn't see it. My sister saw it. I mean, we saw the aftermath. Well, that's devastating. Yeah. But you've taken that you've taken that struggle and you've you've turned it to something great, you know, mm -hmm. fighting for fighting for her, quite frankly, and yeah. other people so that doesn't happen. Yeah. 
Yeah, her life, she didn't give her life in vain. She is known now in Decatur. Mm -hmm. I think there's something there's something amazing to that on the side is, is uh, we often think when people die, that's the end, right? And I think there's, you only, I think you quite frankly die twice. You you die when you, you right, you physically perish, but you also die when people stop living on your legacy. And, you know, to an extent, if you sprinkle enough seeds, you do enough good, uh, that might go on forever, right? And I think that's the beauty of it is, is it takes somebody in a terrible situation. And you could have probably just focused on that and made yourself a victim. You're right, quite, quite frankly, that is a that is a traumatic experience for anyone, let alone a six-year-old to go through. But you used it for something amazing. I think that's exceptional. Yeah, thanks. So you're a great example of somebody who, who runs this amazingly successful company, goes back to school, studies these issues, becomes involved. Why have you stayed in Illinois? Because you, you know, you could have, you could have gone anywhere, uh, not just in America, in, in the world, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've stayed in Chicago. You've stayed in Decatur. Mm-hmm. Why have you, why have you made that decision to plant those roots? And why have you decided to stay and fight here? Um, because uh, I think, first of all, it's worth fighting for. And, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to digress a little bit here. Uh, I've thought a lot about what is the meaning of life. And from a number of sources that I've read, chief among which is Viktor Frankl uh, and Man's Search for Meaning. And the meaning of life is struggle. As a matter of fact, if you take any kind of a, a cell, a living cell, whether it's a plant cell or a an animal cell of some kind, it's designed to struggle, to, to stay alive. And that is the meaning of life. We struggle. We struggle to get what we need to survive physically, socially, spiritually, mentally, and to fulfill our human potential. And so it is all about struggle. So people that would leave because they don't feel like the struggle is worthwhile. I, I think they, they have a, a misunderstanding of what life is all about. But then the other thing is, when you're involved in policy, you, you get an appreciation that if you can just make a few good decisions, you can turn things around. It isn't that difficult from a policy standpoint. The problem is, Take translating that into stories that can excite the electrons and and give rise to the outrage and the civic engagement, and then channel that outrage so that you're not burning down a shopping center, but you're channeling it into meeting with somebody who works in the General Assembly and putting so much pressure on them that they can't not do the right thing. So that's that's what. I see as the struggle. What's your thoughts, Ed, on, is it because that we have less struggle in our life? Like, I think there's something interesting specifically about America that, uh, you know, quite frankly, in the, in the world scheme of poverty, we don't have poverty in America anymore, right? By international standards, poverty is $1.90 per day, right? This is still the scourge that, that billions of people still live in, in the world in poverty. America's nearly eradicated it, even to the extent that 
The average, the average income in America today is approaching the level that each marginal dollar no longer makes you happy. Right. Meaning that like your basic needs, you know, in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, your basic needs are now taken care of. Mm. Do you see that as, as part of the reason that struggle feels different for us now is that a lot of life is no longer that same struggle it used to be for your great grandfather. Uh, I'm not an ascetic, but I will tell you that our popular culture which creates the media that saturates our lives, that comes at us every second of every waking moment, is a simple equation. Meaning equals pleasure. You get that whether it's an ad, uh, music you hear, uh, whatever. And meaning is not pleasure. Meaning is struggle. And when I say struggle... Uh, it doesn't mean conflict. Struggle means struggling to master something so you can do a better job of it, whether it's baking bread, playing guitar, playing basketball, whatever you choose that you want to do in life. But struggling to get better and struggling to get mastery over yourself so you choose what goes into your head instead of somebody else choosing what goes into your head. So... Meaning equals struggle, not meaning equals pleasure. And, and in my opinion, that's the root of it. And I know that we are fellow travelers and we still believe in freedom. You know, I think that there's, there's different levels of political engagement, right? Obviously, I think at the base level, it's, it's voting. Uh, but I think there's other levels of, of engagement that go higher beyond that. Some of it might be giving political money becoming engaged and, and activated in a, in a cause or, quite frankly, in a campaign that you care about. Uh, but you have gone, gone far beyond that, right? You've, you've written books. You've started organizations. You serve on boards. Uh, you have really invested a lot. Can you talk about the importance of investing more inside of, inside of public policy areas or political areas uh, that you care about and why that's important? I, I think that attitude comes from my background in the retail business. Uh, there is a strange distaste by many people for working in retail. The idea that it's not a real job to work on the floor of the Gap or Starbucks or McDonald's or something like that. Never mind that over, if you take all of the billionaires in Forbes' list of billionaires, the vast majority of them have gotten their fortunes from retail. They didn't get it from media. They didn't get it from investment banking or oil or something else. I mean, start with a Waltons or a Les Wexner, Julius Rosenwald, uh, Montgomery Ward, Marshall Field. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So... I realized that you've got to serve the public where the public is. And it was never distasteful for me. I spent a lot of time on the selling floor anonymously trying to help people. I think the same thing goes with, with uh, policy and politics. I think that there are a lot of people that like to have a cocktail and lament the problems in Illinois or in Chicago. but. It's, it's dirty. They don't want to get involved in politics and policy. But if you want to move 
the needle. It's the laws that either exist or don't exist that create the problems. And it, it is the political process that is going to move those things. So you got to do it honorably. You got to do it legally. You got to do it ethically. But we have to play in that field. It, we can't, we've got to get our hands dirty. Why do you think why do you think that is? Because your point is spot on. I remember my first job was in retail myself and I loved it. But I remember a lot of people would come in and say, essentially, I don't want to do this, right? I mean, and I worked in a shoe store where a lot of it was cleaning people's shoes and it was, I don't want to do this. But I love it, loved it. And obviously I'm still engaged in the same similar arena uh, to your analogy. Why do you think people have a distaste? I, your point's right on the, it's, it's dirty or there's problems with it. Why do you think that is? And how do we get them back engaged on something like that? Uh, I, I know some of the reasons why they feel that way about working in retail. And I suspect some of the reasons that they feel that way about politics. But I would say, uh, instead of trying to answer the question, have the people that are listening to this podcast ask themselves that question. And that's exactly what I hope Ed's story will encourage all of us to do. This episode wraps up season one of Stay and Fight, but we'll be back soon. And make sure you click the subscribe button so you don't miss out on future episodes. And we would love your episode ideas. Are there folks you know or who have read about who have powerful stories and are committed to staying in Illinois and fighting for its future? You can reach us at IllinoisPolicy.org and also learn about the rest of our work there. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on Stay and Fight.